cloth Y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, episode number 178 of the Decoding Success Podcast, and you are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie. Welcome to the show, everyone. Super excited to have you as always, and also as always, one thing that we continuously strive to do here at Decoding Success is to bring you the personal resources, the personal mentors, the mentees, the business resources, the coaches, and everything in between that has personally, again, personally impacted my life, because I would be doing a disservice to everyone if I was not sharing the individuals, the resources, etc. So with that being said, today we are doing exactly that with the individual we're introducing in just a little bit. Before getting into that, I want to let you know whether you are new to the show or a returning member of our amazing community of listeners, we wanted to let you know that we are officially live on YouTube. If you have not yet subscribed, you could do so in the show notes of this episode. On top of that, if you have not left a rating and review yet for our show, we would absolutely love that so we can continue getting amazing individuals like the gentleman joining us in just a little bit. And lastly, before introducing this gentleman, I want to let you know that there is a lot of value, a lot of wisdom, a lot of experiences being shared here, and you now have the opportunity to share that with someone. You now have the opportunity to pass that baton of wisdom along to someone, whether that's your employee, your employer, your friends, your coworkers, everyone in between, right? You now have that opportunity and we urge you to do so, whether you're you're sharing it on Instagram or it's a direct message via text or whatever the case is. We just urge you to do that. These episodes are totally free and that would be an amazing way to pay us back for what we're doing and dedicating our time to. Now, with that being said, today we are joined by Drew Linsalata, creator and host of The Anxious Truth, a slightly unorthodox anxiety podcast that's been in full swing since 2014. Now, Drew has over 1 million downloads and growing. The Anxious Truth has spawned a large, vibrant, and engaged social media community of amazing humans supporting, inspiring, encouraging, and empowering each other to overcome anxiety and fear. Having suffered with anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, and depression several times over a 20-year period, Drew got it together once and for all in 2008. Since then, life has been happy, productive, and quote-unquote normal. For the last 15 years, Drew has been active in the online anxiety community, working to use his experience and understanding to help those that are following down the path he's traveled. His no-nonsense approach to these problems and willingness to provide direct, actionable advice, even when it might not be easy to hear, has established him as a unique voice in the community. Now, in 2020, Drew published two books on anxiety and anxiety recovery. An Anxiety Story and The Anxious Truth have quickly become required reading for anyone suffering with anxiety and in need of education, instruction, inspiration, encouragement, and empowerment. And you want to know what? Drew is bringing all of that here to the show today, very vulnerably going to share that I have personally had my my fair share of anxiety, anxiety disorder, and especially agoraphobia and fear. So with that being said, you're going to be diving into an amazing episode here right now, specifically around that. But you want to know what? We're also talking about a lot of things life-related. We're talking about relationships and safety zones and comfort zones. We're talking about business and how Drew was very, very innovative with what he brought to Apple and Macintosh and so much more. So I'm really excited to have you here. And without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Drew Linsalato. Drew, welcome to the show, brother. Super excited to have you. Excited to decode your success and amplify your message, man. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the invite. I'm looking forward to this. Of course, of course. Now you're going to say, Matt, this is a loaded question. I didn't give you much info about the show and how we kick things off. But first question for everyone is, how do you personally define success? Oh, that's kind of an easy one. When love you it. can do what you love to do every day, and you could kind of show up to a meeting or a client event or whatever in shorts and flip-flops, and they got to listen to what you say anyway, because you're so good at what you do, and you treat people well, that's success. I love that's that. That's Yep. So, do what you love oh, to do and do it really well to me. love that. that. That's yeah. Great. That's yeah. beautiful. So a couple questions around that. Sure. Number one, how did you get to that point in your life where you're defining success as that today? 
Well, it, I think that's a, that's a good question, to be honest with you. I think I kind of always defined it that way. So mm-hmm. I don't have one of those stories where it's like, oh, I used to chase money. I used to chase stuff. I kind of never did, to be honest with you. So I always sort of knew, like, this is the way it has to be for me. Right out of school, when I went to work for a, a large company, the whole, like, put on a suit and go to an office every day, I knew, like, two weeks in, oh, this is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just never really chased that stuff. So I, I, I don't know. I kind of just always felt that way. It's always been core value for me. So I'll say this, we, I think this is episode 176 or 177, forgive me for not knowing the exact number, but uh, we've never heard that, um, you know, a lot of individuals we bring on the show, they say that they did chase the money or they did X, Y, and Z, and then it shifted. So it's really beautiful to hear that you kind of, uh, you were aware of that value from a very young age. Yeah. It means that you have to be okay with, you know, like I've made a lot of money at times and I've made no money at times and Mm -hmm. it goes up and down, but to me, as long as I'm doing what I really love to do, you know, and I'm being useful, then the money tends to follow, you know? Right. And that, that, right. that's true. I look, I don't mean that. I don't know if that's a universal truth or not. I don't mean to be that presumptuous, but for me kind of has worked out that way. So, yeah, listen, that's what it comes down to. What works for Drew? And, uh, you know, another question that I guess came about while you were defining success, how did you know what you love to do? Uh, I, I find that a lot of individuals, um, you know, they get into something and then they realize they don't love it. Maybe they realize their parents pushed them to do it. Uh, I'm curious, like, how did you know what it was that you loved to do? Was it trial and error? I mean, maybe early on, I, I remember I had, so I have a degree in architecture, but I Beautiful. haven't done anything like that in many, 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 many years. So and when I first went away to college, I declared myself a computer science major. And we're talking about the eighties, by the way. So like, it was a whole different world back then. Right. And I knew about four weeks into that, I'm like, oh yeah, no, not so much. So it's a kind of interesting story. I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into architecture because that's what I've always sort of had an interest in. And I got my degree in architecture. And I spent a few years doing corporate commercial construction management and design build work and lived in that world. And it was it was all right. I did not like it. It was cool. Um, and then the internet sort of started to become a thing online, like sort of, you know, the early 90s into mid-90s. And I discovered, wow, I really do like technology. So as strange as it is, I left all of the architecture stuff behind and decided to become a technical dude. Right. And so I did that for a long time. And, you know, I was kind of one of those first dot-com guys in the mid-90s and late-90s when we were building all that stuff. And I did that for many, many, many years. And then I think what I really love to do in the end is learn new stuff. So I keep reinventing mm-hmm. myself and doing new things. And then uh, my own experience is going through anxiety disorders led me to what I'm doing now. So I still have a foot in the technology game, but really most of my time these days is spent podcasting and writing and speaking and coaching on anxiety disorders. So that is really evidently what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I have no regrets about any of the stuff that I used to do, but my life experience led me to this. And you know what I really, awesome. and go ahead, Drew, I'm sorry, did I cut you oh, off there? Oh, cool, go for it. One thing that I really, really love that you just said is that you essentially took your pain and made it into your brand. And I did not plan to do that. And if somebody right. were to ask me, what's your brand? Like I'm the worst branding person on the planet. I'm, I suck <laughs> at all of this. I Like I should probably be way more successful monetarily than I am at this, which is kind of not really yet. I mean, I'm just kind of deciding that this is a full-time thing, but uh, yeah, I, I, I just, to me, it's I take my, what happened to me now feels like it had a purpose, put it to you that way. I love that. I absolutely love that. I have to ask, what was it that made you want to pursue that, yeah. right? Like you, you were saying that you were experiencing anxiety disorders, et cetera. And yeah. what was it that said, Drew, okay, like pursue this, like you have something to teach other people. Kind of early on, um, and remember that when I started going through those things, there was no internet. So by the time I finally got my act together and sort of really solved the problem that I had, which was panic disorder and agoraphobia and depression that was recurring throughout my life, the internet was just sort of, YouTube was just starting up, it was in the mid 2000s. And I made a lot of friends online that we started supporting each other, helping each other. And I discovered that helping other people through it, first while I was going through it, was incredibly rewarding and also therapeutic to a, to a sense. And then, you know, when I, when I kind of got to the other side of this and left it behind, it was always just been a core value. Like I think all, everything we achieve in life, we achieve because we stand on the shoulders of the people who come before us. There's a collected mm-hmm. knowledge, right. You know, of, of humanity, whatever you want to call it. And I felt like, well, now my job is to pay back the help that I got from other people when I needed it. And I just started 
you know, kept helping people online. And then I started talking into a microphone, did a podcast six years ago and just kept doing it. It's really rewarding. I love it. And then it just turned into this, this monster now that has a life of its own and I'm digging it. I hear that. Listen, I didn't realize how fun podcasting was until I started having conversations like this. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck have I been missing? <laughs> you know? And it's funny because for the first, you know, so I started the podcast in 2014. I was literally sitting on my living room floor, like talking into my like shitty iPhone 4 or whatever I had at the time. <laughs> I had like a $3 app and I just started talking into it and to talking to nobody, you know how it is. You start a podcast, you have to be willing to talk to nobody at first. Nobody's listening. Right. And I had a little bit of a following and stuff because I had still been active online in the anxiety community and stuff, but I didn't start talking to other people on the podcast until maybe three years ago. And that was like, this is amazing. I meet so many smart people and people have things to offer. I love that part of it. Collaboration is the coolest. A hundred percent. And that's essentially how I, I kind of just said to myself, all right, dude, like you're, you're reaching out to Drew. I told you via email that I was working with a coach. Uh, so, you know, I, I gave you very, very brief information uh, and I, I throw it all out there, man. Like I'm super vulnerable on the show. I got hit with a fucking whirlwind like in June and I started working with, I needed to do that inner work. Right. And I'm sure we're going to dive into that today. And uh, I was talking with my coach about two weeks ago and she was like, you should really look into the anxious truth. And what's so funny is that your book popped up on Amazon. And before she even said that, and I'm like, where did I, where did I fucking see that book? So I went, I bought it. I have it right next to me. And last Saturday I was listening, or I should say I was watching podcasts on YouTube and I'm like, you know, what? Let me check out Drew's podcast. So yeah. I pulled it up episode. I think it was 174. And I was like, holy shit. Like I, I f- like I felt so much comfort hearing your podcast yeah. and you know, I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful to be able to have this conversation before diving into that though. Yeah. Um, I, I want to learn more about your journey. And I always ask this question. People find it funny. Um, who was Drew in high school? Like how, uh, what were you doing back then? Uh, what was life like? What was the dream, et cetera? Yeah. That's actually a good way to start this line of questioning because to tell you the truth, I was kind of the bulletproof, never nervous, top of the class, overachiever. I was that dude, right? So never study, still graduate seventh out of 1,400 kids in my grad, my high school class. I had excelled in music and I was pretty athletic and all of that stuff. And I never, I never sweated anything. I was never nervous, never afraid of a goddamn thing. Like I was just, I just ran life over always from an early age. And you know, that kind of set me up for this weird thing when the anxiety and depression stuff hit. And it was like, oh, and that all just got, I got flushed fast. And it was like, oh shit, I got to find that. I got to get that back. So that's a big part of the story. That's who I was. I was that guy. I had tons of friends and it was, it was great, man. It was high school was awesome. Yeah. I, I, I resonate with that so much. I like, you use the word bulletproof. Like I literally felt bulletproof for so long. And then next thing you know, I got hit with waves of anxiety and I'm like, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Like armor plated. No shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. When did you first realize, or, or when did you not realize, when did you first feel like you were experiencing anxiety? Oh, I can tell you exactly. So it was my sophomore year. I went to the school in Buffalo, right? So I went to the university of Buffalo and uh, I was doing great that semester. Right? And I came home for spring break. So I was actually in the house I grew up in. I had my very first panic attack. I had never experienced wow. anything like that ever before. There's no internet. So, you know, we don't have an Instagram feed full of people talking about anxiety. So what the hell did I know? I didn't know anything. So I had this first experience, which I actually wrote about in my first book. I tell that whole story. It was, I will never forget that till the day I, I leave this planet. It was really so scary. I had no idea what was going on. I just assumed I was dying at 19. I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. had a good, good run, man, 19 years. I truly thought that I was dying that night. And that was the first time. And then I, I slid right into, I was a textbook progression from anxiety, from panic attack to panic disorder, which then pre- proceeds to agoraphobia. So, That's so interesting. Yeah. Holy shit. So yeah. what, what, what exactly happened in the following events leading up to that one, or I should say preceding that one, like life was good. I like, I was killing it in school, like a, you know, good relationship with a girlfriend. I had my friend, like everything was going great. I didn't have anything like people always say like, well, you know, were you under a lot of stress? No, I was under no stress. In fact, I never mm-hmm. felt stressed. Now in, in retrospect, you could say, well, clearly you were feeling it and you didn't know, and you were stuffing it down. Oh, maybe I still don't know to this day, right. but there was no triggering event. I still do not know what the triggering event was or is maybe there, I have no idea. 
Well, maybe maybe you experienced it because you needed to, you know, make it your brand. It's fine. You know? hey, who knows? It could have been, you know, I, you can interpret it any way you want. I'm open to any and all interpretations, but I don't have a thing. It wasn't like, yeah, I lost, you know, whatever. Someone passed away or I had a breakup. Nothing. Right. Doing great. So did you end up going to the hospital that night or anything? No. The strange thing about that was I just figured like, oh, well, I guess, it, you know, if I'm going to die, at least I'm going to die at home in the house I grew up in. So I right. did not go to the hospital, but I did have, you know, experiences after that, which is super common for people who have panic attacks and don't know what they are, where I, I would go to the ER from sometimes because right. I thought for sure that it was dangerous when it's really not. But no, I didn't. I just just kind of it was it was a surreal night. I remember the songs on the radio. I remember everything about that night. It was really messed up. I mean, it's ingrained within you. It's hard not, it's hard to forget any of that stuff. Yeah, that's an experience I'm never, ever going to forget. I could feel it now. I could actually feel it. I could hear the radio. I could feel, I remember going right. to the, into my bathroom at one point and sitting on the floor, pressing my back against the tile because it was cold and I wanted to feel that, that coldness and all of that stuff. It was really weird. Yeah, man. Wow. So after you experienced that, what, took place in your life? Like, obviously I'm sure you went back to school. You said that yeah. you got your degree. Yeah. Um, were you experiencing anxiety frequently or, or panic um, frequently? No. So my story is kind of weird. So that happened. That was spring break of my sophomore year. I go back after spring break. I struggled to get to the end of that semester. So I'm panic attacks constantly. I developed like a very unhealthy kind of safe person thing with my girlfriend. I was, I had to be with her all the time. You know, I was running to the freaking, you know, the, uh, the medical services on campus a lot. I managed to get a perfect 4.0 grade point average. Like who the F gets a perfect 4.0 in the midst of panic disorder? This dude, I don't know how to this day, but I finished and then everything got better over the summer. I went and saw a therapist who handed me a book by an Australian physician uh, she passed away already, but by the name of Dr. Claire Weeks, she wrote a book called Hope and Help for Your Nerves. So, and I read that book and it was, it described everything. I, he said, just read this. I had one session with this guy. He was super great, his therapist uh, out here on the island. He gave me the book, he said, just read this. I read the whole thing that night, whole book. I'm a super fast reader. I stayed home from work the next day to read it again. Wow. And literally within two weeks, I just stopped. I stopped having panic attacks because for me, that first time, just knowing what it was, was enough. That didn't last because they came back 10 years later. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, so I finished my last two years of school and started building a life without having, no. you know, it didn't happen again. It's weird. Right. Yeah, man. So yeah. you, you really credit that book to, uh, to yes. an extent. If, if Claire, Claire Weeks did not, and she was Australian and she did a lot of this work. She was very pioneering in the field. She's very, still very widely respected. She was one of the first people to start writing about these anxiety disorders in layman's terms and putting it in terms that you could understand. And she was, it was like, she wrote the book for me. It was amazing. Like, I was just like, holy shit. Yes, I have this, 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 and this. Oh, that's what this is. I'm good. Good to go. Like, that was me. Like, I'm, I'm good. I know what it is. I got this. And that was fine for 10 years, man. 10 years. So what happened at 10 years where it came back? 10 years later, and you look, you could say there's probably a pattern in this. 10 years later, everything is going great again. So like I actually started a service that everybody, you might have, a, are you using a Mac right now? I am. Okay. So a lot of people are, right? Like 30% of us are probably using a Mac. Back in those days, Apple was down to their last 10 bucks, you know, like in the bank, they were, they were done. They were history, stick a fork in them. But, and so when you're starting an ISP, so I was an internet service provider back in those days. And we all used Macs. We were weirdos back then because we were all Mac users in my office. And I said, hey, you know how when you're an ISP and or when you're on the internet, you need to call tech support and nobody in tech support knows anything about a Macintosh because nobody fucking used them back then. Right. How about we be those guys? And I started an, an internet service called Mac Connect that, that only sold to Mac users. And it wow. was like, bang. Like if you want to talk about a little bit of the business side, like that was stupid, dumb luck, good idea. And it worked great. Like we were practically selling on religion because back in the day, Mac users were like, oh, it's us against the world, man. Bill Gates is evil. Windows. <laughs> and meanwhile, Apple is in flames. They're literally just sinking fast before Steve Jobs came back. And we were there like, hey, we'll take care of you peeps. So we, we had just a shit ton of customers. Business was great. Boom. So again, things are going great in my life. And it came back. So who knows? We can analyze that for hours. I know. Wow. But that's yeah. incredible, man. So, so talk to me about the business side, you know, you bring it up, like, what do you feel like your biggest takeaway has been to this day in business? Uh, I think the biggest takeaway that I really have, and I got a few years on you, so I've been at this a while, 
just be ethical, follow a moral compass. I don't mean moral right and wrong, religious stuff, but just be a good person, treat people well, do what you say you're going to do, stay true to your word, like, and be good at what you do. If you don't know, say you don't know, find out. They're very simple rules to me in business. And that has led to, hey, you know, people kept coming back. So over the years, when I, I stayed in the technical business, even though that business Cable modems took care of that. That was done. But we morphed into different parts of internet services as well. And people just kept following along. And I just developed a reputation for if you need something done, go to this guy and he'll treat you well and he knows what he's doing. Now, that's it. Are, are you having more fun with what you're doing now than what you've done in the past? I, I always, the most fun that I always had in the past in techno and technology and technical businesses was learning new things. So I am just a serial, like a learning junkie. So back in 1996, when I decided like, Hey, how about I be an internet guy? I just went to Barnes and Noble. There was no Amazon, you know, and I just bought a shit ton of O'Reilly books. Anybody who is in the business knows the O'Reilly books. Like I'm going to learn. And I just read. And that's how I learned to be an IP dude, like an internet protocol guy. And uh, just, yeah, and that's what I do. So I just learn new things and then I do them. I and love that. That was the fun part of technology. This is a different kind of fun. This is, I love learning this stuff. I've always been like a behavioral sciences nerd. I dig cognition and learning theory. I always have, I've always been into it. But helping people at this level and a personal level is way more fun at like an emotional level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you were mentioning it earlier, how rewarding it was helping other people. I mean, like we're, we're almost wired to want to help other people. And when yeah. you do it and you're like, I, I actually compare it. I, I did my first ever speaking engagement at Nassau community college. Okay. Um, yeah. In 2017, I, I was fresh out of college and I never felt butterflies. It was like butterflies, like a girlfriend or, or, or yeah. a significant other giving me but- butterflies. I was like, what the fuck is that? It felt amazing, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it came from helping people, you know, it's cool. Isn't it? It's, it's amazing. You know, I've had my share of like, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're pounding on a keyboard and you get something to work. And it's like, yes, I will literally get out of my chair and like fist bump and shit to nobody. <laughs> right. doing it all alone. That's fun. That's a thrill, I guess. But the thrill of having a person you watch them change their lives because you're handing them your experience and, and shining a light for them. Mm. It's incredibly rewarding. It might not be the same thrill, but it's, it's a different kind of thrill. It's just all kinds of awesome. So, right. And then watching them learn the lessons and then pass them on to other people. That's the best part. That yeah. Is the, yeah. I have a huge social media community that surrounds the podcast and my books. That's the best part, watching them help each other. It's amazing. I love that. I absolutely love it. I guess we're going to bounce around here a little bit from business to this to that. I I love this. I'm having a blast. Um, You know, you said 10 years pass and the panic comes back. Yeah. How did you start to alleviate that? Or did you alleviate it at that point in your life? So when the panic came back, I still had that book. I had the Claire Weeks book. It's I don't have an, I have the Kindle version now, but uh, I still had the book. And for whatever reason, one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life is I didn't go back to the book. I said like, yeah, yeah, I know it. I know it. But I never had to actually practice the way to relate to anxiety and panic. The first time I read the book and like it clicked and it went away. So I didn't have to do any of the work that's required to actually overcome an anxiety disorder. And I was too stupid to say, well, I should reread the book and maybe look at applying these things and, you know, really putting them to work. And I didn't do that. So I made all the mistakes, all the mistakes, which is I started avoiding things, anything that made me anxious, I would start to go away from. And this is a dude that, you know, bulletproof guy, like not afraid of anything. And I started backing away, like driving became a huge problem. Like going to the supermarket became a huge problem. I was textbook panic disorder with agoraphobia textbook. So I just world, then your world gets smaller and smaller, and smaller, because the more you avoid things, because you think it makes you feel better. Oh, I don't want to panic. I don't want to feel anxiety. I should get away from it. Right. That's, right. that's what we all do instinctually. But if you get into a situation where you're experiencing disordered anxiety, it's anxiety disorder, that is the kiss of death. And that's what I did. I dealt with it all wrong. And it makes it worse and worse and worse over time. And then you wind up agoraphobic and then depression set in. It was ugly, really ugly. Yeah, I think uh, I think that is exactly why my coach had brought you up to me because I was, uh, I'm was i actually experiencing it right now, agoraphobia. Not right in the second, right. but All right. um, when it was coming to driving, I think that was a, a really big thing. I, I had a couple, and the reason I asked like tr- to try and understand your situation is because for me, I had a couple like PTSD moments yeah. where I'm just like, holy shit, like this happened and I'm scared to relive that um really scary shit 
Yeah, that's the basis. That's what fuels these disorders. So panic disorder is a strange thing and unchecked left. Ooh, that was the dryer left unchecked. <laughs> it will it will turn into agoraphobia when avoidance kicks in. Right. So when we have these unpleasant experiences or really borderline traumatic experiences, that's how we experience panic. In some cases, it's life threat. You think it's life threatening. It's not. It's just very scary with nothing underneath the fear, it's real fear, but nothing underneath it. You just don't we're wired to not want to repeat those those things. We don't want to repeat that again. So we start to do everything we can to try to never let that happen again, which is, you know, that's what humans do in a way. If a dog right. bites you, you won't, you don't go near that dog again. So right, right. that's bad. It fuels the disorder, you know? Interesting. So, so are you saying to step into it? Yeah. Yeah. In a way that is the way you do this. So, and I know, look, people are either ready to hear this or they're not ready to hear this. So some percentage of people listening to us right now that are dealing with panic attacks, or maybe they're having problems with agoraphobia and they're avoiding and their life is getting smaller. They're hearing us and they're like, no fucking way, man. What are you, are you telling me? And I've heard, you've clearly never had this before. You don't know what it feels like. I'm like, oh, I know what it feels like. It's 30 years of it, man. Like I've been in the ER. I've done all that stuff. I've been afraid to be alone in my house. I've been frozen in fear in my own bathroom. I have lived all of that all of it. I was afraid to be the first guy to, to drink the orange juice in case it was contaminated. I had all the intrusive thoughts, the OCD stuff, all of that. So don't tell me I didn't know. Avoiding it will make it worse. So you do have to go into it. You have to start doing the things you are afraid to do. We don't learn to not panic. We learn to build a new relationship with anxiety and panic. That's mm -hmm. what we do. That's how you solve this problem. Yeah. Now, now how much know, like neuroplasticity is involved in that? I mean, neuroplasticity is a really popular word that's being passed around right now. And it's a real thing. I mean, our brains are amazing, right? Human brains are just amazing. It's, it's you know, you got to love a human brain. Neuroplasticity is, yeah, it's a lot. Because really what you're doing is panic disorder and agoraphobia and all the, the disorders that I'm usually talking about, these are cognitive issues. So the first thing you have to convince somebody is even though you're feeling it in your body, this is not a body problem, even though, so everybody will want to go for herbs and supplements and change their diet. And, Oh, I heard I should not have MSG. I better cut out caffeine. Yeah, fine. Eat healthy, do all that stuff. That's fine. But not because it's going to fix your anxiety. So first we have to do is understand this is not a body problem. It's a cognition problem. It's a learning problem. So I have a bad experience. I learned to fear the experience. So the, what happens in these disorders is you learn to be afraid of the anxiety itself. So when you talk about neuroplasticity, we have to unlearn that. So we have unpleasant thoughts that come and unpleasant bodily sensations, and we begin to fear the sensations and the thoughts themselves. So when you get on the BQE and you're freaking the F out, it's not because of the BQE. It's because you don't like what panic feels like. And so you start to learn to be afraid of that. Where neuroplasticity comes into it is we, when we do it the right way and we go toward the fear, we experience it in a new way, more productively, we unlearn that fear. And we say, well, yeah, this is really unpleasant, but I don't have to fear it. I have to learn to tolerate it, navigate through it. And then when you're not afraid of it anymore, then it goes away. That's how that works. So yeah, there's neuroplasticity in there for sure. You're learning new things. Right. What do you feel? Yeah. And if, if you don't mind sharing this, um, you could say, you could say, Matt, go fuck yourself. Um, but um, what do you feel like was your most, and monumental might not be the worst, uh, the best word, but what do you feel like has been your most monumental experience in that regard where it was just like, holy fuck, you know, and I just, I just ask for relatability purposes for the people that are out there. Uh, you know, you, you were just sharing that, uh, you've, you've had people say, well, you've never experienced it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I'm curious. Uh, right. Yeah. Like, so, I, I mean, I could talk about, I could, I mean, we, I'll share anything. I'm an open book about this stuff. If I, you know what, if I can't write about it and talk about it, unless I share about it, you can't, I can't tell you to do something I've never done. I'm not that, that guy. So I've had several experiences that stick with me. The first panic attack, when you, if you're sure that I can't think of anything scary than being hundred percent sure that you were dying, it's about the scariest thing you got. Right. And that was me with panic threat. I would always come back to that. Like, this is going to kill me. I'm having a heart attack, whatever. Something this is like a, I'm going to die from this. I have been in the ER multiple times. I have literally gone and like knocked on the door of like a psych ward in a hospital. Like, I think I need help with this. You have to help me. I don't know what I'm at. I can't control this. This is bad. So I have done all of those things. Those are, though I was monumental. Those are impressions. Those are experiences that stay with you. They teach you things. They teach you like, this isn't okay. I don't want to ever do this again. I need help. I'm out of control. Like, I don't know what to do with this. 
So, I mean, I could relay a lot of those. I've been in situations where I couldn't do the simplest shit. I just couldn't do it. I was too afraid to do it. You know, right. my kids were small and I missed out on a lot of their stuff because I couldn't do just dad things. And yeah, it's, it's tough, man. I mean, if you want particulars or whatever, but when you're missing life and you feel like you're, you just can't handle anything. Yeah. It ain't easy. So I totally get that. Yeah, I totally I get it. Yeah. So what's a question you wish more people would ask you in, reg- and maybe just, we, we don't even have to say in regards to agoraphobia, panic, anxiety, et cetera. What's a question you wish more people would ask you? I wish more people would ask me, what is the, that's a good question. What question should people, what I would do? I wish people would ask me, I wish people would ask me, how can I, how can I learn to not be afraid of my own body and mind? Because that really is the keys to the kingdom here in terms of these things that I'm always writing and speaking about. Invariably, people want to ask me a zillion other questions first. Like, what's the best food for anxiety? What should I stop eating? Is there, what should I exercise? Should I, I hear sunlight is good for anxiety. They ask all the wrong questions. They don't just ask them of me. They ask them of the world. You know, what, what meds should I take? What, you know, how about herbs? What about essential oils? What about weighted blankets? They ask me all the wrong questions. I wish they would just ask, tell me how to learn to not be afraid of panic and anxiety. And I wish that the world knew the difference between anxiety and an anxiety disorder, which that's important. So, right. It's a big deal. So, what would yeah. be the answer to the question? I was waiting for you. See how I set you up that way? I'm good that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> the answer, answer the question, answer the question. How do I learn? There's two questions there that really need to be answered. Number one, what's the difference between anxiety and an anxiety disorder is the first question. And that is, Every, every human being experiences anxiety. That's just part of being alive. Even you and I self-declared bulletproof guys, look, anxiety is part of the deal. Bulletproof is not normal, right? I think we could both probably agree on that. That wasn't a good way to be. So everybody experiences anxiety, but an- disordered anxiety is when the anxiety itself breeds more anxiety. So when you're anxious because you had a fight with your girlfriend or maybe, you know, your job is in shaky ground or you're having money troubles, you know, well, I'm really anxious because like shit's happening right now. It's the shit that's happening that, you know, makes you anxious, but in anxiety disorders, you start to fear the anxiety itself. So that's number one. And that leads you to most of the information that has the word anxiety attached to it online today in 2021 has nothing to do with anxiety disorders. So listening to Jay Shetty and fucking Russell Brand, and I just want to choke the life out of some of these MFers because they are given a lot of anxiety advice and mental health advice. that has nothing to do, Matt, with your problem, panic disorder with agoraphobia, none. Like positive thinking and gratitude journaling and like, you know, positive mindset and growth mindset. That does, that's like bullets off a of Superman in this situation. So right. we need to understand the difference between anxiety and anxiety disorders. You have to become a careful consumer of who you think is going to get you out of this because Deepak Chopra ain't going to get you out of this. He's just not, but it's not his fault. He's not talking about panic disorder or OCD. He's just talking about the angst of life, two different things. The second question, how do you, how do you learn to do this? You do it systematically and incrementally and consistently and relentlessly. So you find the things that you are afraid to do and you just start doing them little by little, step by step. If you become agoraphobic, you start by literally just standing by the front door and having a panic attack till you're used to standing by the front door. Then you start walking out the door. Then you start walking down your steps. Then you start walking down the driveway. That's how you do this. So it's a, there's a method to the madness. It's not a, I'm just going to kick its ass, man. So I've been, I've been housebound for six months. I'm going to just drive to Texas tomorrow. I'm going to kill it, man. Can't do that. You got to do it. There's a, there's a method to the madness. It's scary too. It's scary, hard shit. Nobody wants to do hard shit, but you have to. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. I think that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I was listening to, uh, I believe it was episode 174 or 175 on your podcast in regards to driving on the highway or freeway, because I had an absolutely stressful, traumatic experience uh, in North Dakota. Now I'm, I'm a born and raised Queens kid, as are you, you know? So like, I'm in fucking, like I, <laughs> I had a speaking Nothing engagement. There, yeah, it was, yeah. Um, it was scary as fuck because I was by myself and I was yeah. driving and I was just like, holy shit. You know, like it, it, was, it really shook me to my core. And then after that was a total downward spiral. And it got to a point where I was scared to drive out to the Hamptons this summer. 
And I was yeah. like avoiding that. So like this really, really resonates. And I think the reason I bring that up is because on your podcast, uh, I believe you were doing like a question and answer with another gentleman. And he had mentioned yeah. that he was having a uh, struggle with uh, driving on the highway. And he said yeah. the way that he goes about it is literally getting on the highway, driving one, one exit and turning around yeah. the next day, driving yeah. two, the next day, driving three. And I thought that was so That's beautiful. Exactly. You know, yeah. like I was like, That's holy it. shit, I found so much comfort in that. You know, what's interesting about it is a lot of people look for like these light bulb and lightning moments. Like I got to find the root cause. I'm going to have some sort of spiritual awakening. It's going to fix my anxiety. Not really. It's like super dry. Like I'm an engineer in this respect. Like I'm just a behavioral engineer. That's what I, how I help people. So it's really dry and it's simple, but it's hard to do. So yeah, that's how you do it. You do that. You do those things systematic. There's a there's a way, but it comes down to that just systematically, incrementally, incrementally, incrementally. And what you're doing is you're acclimating to those sensations and those thoughts. So whereas panic is something you want to avoid, you start to learn to acclimate it, do the opposite. So when you panic, instead of, you know, hauling ass back home to your safe place to get saved, you stay put and let it peak and then go down. And what you learn is if I do nothing to save myself, it still ends anyway. I don't have to run home. And then it starts to get less scary. And it's like, oh yeah, I don't like this, but I'm afraid of it. Then everything right. changes. Then everything changes. I love that drive across North Dakota, dude. Like I can relate I, how that must've felt. I never had it happen. I remember driving up to Syracuse. I went, I was my, my buddy of mine was graduating from law school many years ago and I'm driving up to Syracuse and just, you know, on the thruway or 81, you're between like Utica and nowhere. And <laughs> like, there's no help because it always comes down to like, you're in the middle of like between Bismarck and Fargo and you're panicking in the dark highway by yourself. Who's going to save you. Right. Super scary. Nobody. That's what it was. That's yeah. what, and you know what's so funny? I was going to Fargo, so, so, you <laughs> so I, I get it. I get it. I was going to Fargo, man. It was yeah. uh, a really stressful experience. But uh, what you learn though is that you never needed to be saved. You didn't need anybody to save you because you were never actually in any danger. That's what you learn when you do it this way. It's a new way. You know. I really appreciate how practical you keep this, right? Because I, I've been on both ends of the spectrum, right? Like I, I really haven't been exposed to the practical end of things. So like you're the first person that I'm, I'm hearing and yeah. I'm really grateful for this. Like you're the first person I'm hearing that keeps it practical, right? Because I've heard the woo-woo shit. I've, yeah. I've heard the Kool-Aid <laughs> shit. And uh, listen, you know, I, I like it. I, I definitely like it. I'm not, I'm not bashing it by any means, right. but it's also really refreshing to hear it in human <laughs> to hear it in human, to say the least. I think one of my calling cards in all this is I do bring a unique voice to the discussion for sure. And sometimes people get a little angry with me because I squash that stuff right away. But look, when you're out of the throes of your anxiety disorder and you're enjoying Deepak Chopra, knock yourself out. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. There's nothing wrong with nourishing your spirit and like, you know, taking care of that sort of stuff. It's all good stuff. That's not bad inherently. It just doesn't apply to disordered anxiety. So fine, use it. But when that sort of stuff comes up, I just, I stomp on it so hard and it keeps my social community, my social media community laser focused. Like, no, no, no. We'll go back to that later. Like you can read more Eckhart Tolle later, not now because he's, he's not helping you now. He's hurting you now. And that's a hard sell sometimes because that stuff is so popular, but like, no, to solve this problem, just leave that, please just leave that all behind and let's just do this nuts and bolts shit for a little while. Then you can go back to those books. It'll be cool. Right. Then you can read all the, you know, Brene Brown that you want or whoever it is. Like, you, you know, Glennon Doyle, you can read all of those things then, not now, not helping you now. It's so funny. You're mentioning all the authors. I, I find myself reading more and more. <laughs> and they're great authors. I don't get me wrong. I respect those people. And they, they're tremendous helpers. They really are. And they share openly and it's great. You're just not talking about these particular problems. That's the right. most frustrating part of this. Put it on the bookshelf for now. Go do your exposure work and then come back to it. I love that, man. Um, wow. yeah. From your experience and, you know, from the individuals you're coaching, maybe from yourself. So how long do you feel like the exposure work on average takes for individuals to start seeing improvements? It's uh, the cool thing about it is this approach to the disorders is a cognitive behavioral approach. And it is the gold standard for treating these things. And we know that it's a short duration, right? So most people think if you go to see a therapist, you just like talk to the therapist for three years and find out that your mom didn't hug you enough. And that's why I have panic attacks. 
this situation, like cognitive behavioral therapy or its variants that are most successful in treating these things are much shorter duration. So a lot of people see really marked improvement within a matter of two or three months. Like, wow. You know, the people that, oh yeah, all the time, people that I work with all the time, it's like, well, they might not be fully recovered from the disorder. Don't get me wrong. It's a work in progress, but they will go from like, I can't leave the house to, oh, look, I'm doing the shopping now. I'm taking the kids to school, going back to work a couple of days a week. They start, that happens relatively quickly once you get them to start doing the right thing. So it's a short duration treatment, which is nice. It's a bonus. That's incredible. I was expecting you to say years. Like, Well, uh, you know, in my own experience, I always say, people always say, well, like, well, how long did it take you to get a hundred percent recovered? So first you have to define recover. Recover is not that I never have anxiety because there are days that I might feel anxious. I might have a panic attack two or three times a year. Maybe it's possible. I just don't care. It's over really fast. But I would say I was 80% recovered within a year, but the last 20% is like, well, I didn't have to fly anywhere. I didn't have to go 500 miles away by myself. So it's hard to practice those things. But once you get to that 70, 80% thing, you keep pushing yourself all the way so that the whole world is your safe zone. That might take a while, but that's not really life impacting because when it comes up, then you deal with it. You don't have to fly right. to Egypt every day, but when you do, you'll have built a foundation where if you're a little anxious about that, that's all right, you can get through it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely love that. I I ask a question on this show um, and I'm really curious to hear your answer. Um, What is a piece of advice you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but proved to be true over time? Uh, I, I can answer that question pretty easily. One of the therapists that I did see, she was clearly a humanistic therapist. There's different schools of therapy, right? So when you seek out a therapist to solve this problem, you really want somebody who specializes in anxiety disorders. They're not just a talk therapist. So I had the wrong person and she wanted to help. Clearly she wanted to help. I have no problem with her, but she just wanted to keep talking about, you know, when you stuff things down, you stuff things down and the jug is going to overflow. The bottles are like a milk jug. You can't hold anymore. And I was like, I'm hearing a lot of this and I just, I want to see a lot of this. Like this is not solving my problem right now. So I really dismissed it, but there's merit to that. So while I might be talking a lot about the nuts and bolts and mechanics, behavioral mechanics of anxiety disorders, you do also have to do that stuff too. And I wished I had paid a little more attention to her because I probably would have been more useful to people faster had I embraced that a little more. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that has been the most monumental thing for me as of late. Um, since since June of 2020, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I had 27 years of suppression, you know, okay, sure. uh, I, I manned up all the time. I, I was a man's man. You know, I was that bulletproof guy who uh, I've been arrested. In fact, I got arrested in Howard Beach, uh, not too far from Ozone Park. I uh, failed out of college. I got kicked out of two high schools, like the whole nine, you know, and I just suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I actually, in, in very similar fashion to you, I started to make that my brand and I'm actually working on something now to uh, kind of uh, shift that for men in particular, who are very, very prone to suppression. And, you know, we really need that because while the suppression itself, once the anxiety becomes the source of the anxiety itself, well, you're disconnected from the suppression. Like your panic disorder, your agoraphobia is driven by the anxiety itself. So first we stop the bleeding, get you out of your house. We get you to not fear the panic and not fear the anxiety. So we, we separate that, the sensations and the fear, right? But then if you're going to learn all these cool tools, that's great. But if you're still suppressing, you know, you're going to continually walk around with an overflowing like life jug. It's silly. You know, that's if you don't keep rebuilding your house when the train runs it over, move the fucking house off the tracks, too. So you should learn how to rebuild your house when shit happens. That's stuff I'm talking about. But you'd also learn not to live on the train tracks. That's the Mm -hmm. stuff you're talking about. So it all goes together. You just have to know the right sequence of events. That's all. And yeah, I like that you're talking about that because dudes, yeah, we were given that, that message all the time. And look, in, the, in what you're doing, I'm guessing you're a little bit more into the business entrepreneur kind of side of things. I mean, you see it on the daily in that, in, in that whole community. Get shit done. Be responsible for your own shit. As if they invented this stuff. Did you learn that in kindergarten, brother? Don't make that your brand. Like, be responsible for your own shit. No one's going to take care of it. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but it's also, there's a hidden message in there that says, man the fuck up and you'll make money, which is not a good message. It's a harmful message in the end. Yeah, there's a lack of mindfulness. Um, and I, there, 
there's an amazing individual. His name is Mario Armstrong. Um, he has a, a show on NASDAQ or, or filmed at NASDAQ in the city. And he was the first person that really, really made me aware of hustling mindfully. Yeah. Um, and it, it was it was backed up by the coach that I was working with recently who was like, Matt, listen, if you need to take a fucking nap on a Wednesday, dude, take a fucking nap. Right. It doesn't make you, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I had the frame of mind where I was like, Matt, you're, you're really fucking up right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like, you know, hustle call. And look at this point, at this stage, I don't have to make any friends in that, in that area. So like Gary V did more to damage people than he will ever do to help people. And I'll stand by that. Fight me on it. I don't care because I know that he found Jay Shetty and decided he's going to soften his message because he was getting a lot of shit, but he spent years telling you that he worked 18 hours a day and that's you, you should do that too. That's not cool. So now you can't even take a nap if you have the flu. Come on, dude. That's not fine. That's yeah. not so on a mental health standpoint, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we really we, do. We, we definitely do. We definitely do. Um, I'm curious, what was the book, uh, book writing process like for you? I mean, you, you didn't come from this background and you, you, you dove into it. I actually launched a book, which I would love, I would love to help any which way possible. We'll talk about that after or another time, but I'm curious. Um, talk, talk to me about that. Well, I've always been a strong writer. It's, it's definitely a strong suit for me. I, I read quickly. I write quickly. I'm a good writer. So everybody just wanted me to write. So all the people listening to the podcast and in my, my social media community, it's like, you should write this down. You should write a book, you should write a book. It became a necessity because when you are spending your time trying to help people, you know, writing it down in a logical sequence is a really a much better way to deliver the information to them. So finally it's like, all right, I'll write a book because they wanted me to, but then I realized, oh, this is also a much easier way to teach. I can't teach in little Facebook posts and 30 minute, you know, little Instagram posts like that's, you can't teach anxiety recovery that way. So that's why I wrote the books. The process was really cool. I started out writing. I started out to write the, the, uh, the book called the anxious truth. And I said, well, I got to write the introduction, which tells my story. And when I started writing, I'm like, oh, this introduction is really long. It's going to be its own book. So I started writing one book and I wound up writing two, which my editor was always like super thrilled about. And I'm like, hey, hell, uh, I got a second book for you. And we got to do that one first. And she was like, what? So <laughs> it, it was crazy fun. The, the, when I finished the books, I had a two-week period. So the books came out about a year ago. The first book came out called An Anxiety Story. I finished both of those books. I probably wrote... I wrote 40,000 words in about 10 days. It was wow. a crazy sprint to the end. And it was just like, the words were just pouring out of me. It was great. It was so much fun. So I would, that's amazing. Anybody to write a book. Cause it's just so much fun. It was fun that, for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's so incredible. Now, was it fun for you because you knew how impactful this could be or was it fun for you for a different reason? Just the act of doing it. And again, that thing where like I'm a learning junkie and I like to do new things and, and totally. learn, try new things. Like I never wrote a book before. So I was like, look, I'm actually writing a book. It was a little bit thrilling. Like, holy shit, this is crazy. I'm writing a book. I like, you know, pack up the laptop and go to Starbucks on a Saturday. And I said, okay, I'm going to write for an hour every day. And I'd sit there and some days I'd write, you know, 800 words or 900 words. Some days I would sit there for an hour and a half and bang up 4,000 words. It was the greatest. And that was just a thrill to be able to actually accomplish that. Then it was over. It was like, well, I hope I wrote something useful. <laughs> it turns out I did, but uh, it was the act of writing itself that I found so thrilling. And now the feedback. There's nothing cooler than logging onto Instagram and seeing people post pictures of your book that you never met. You have no idea who they are, but they bought your book. It's, dude, it's crazy, dude. dude. Got it right here, man. Oh, you got the new cover too. You just changed the cover. So I'm not going to lie. I'm very intimidated to chunky books. I know. I've heard this. But, but, but the thing is, I mean, you have, you have it perfectly for me. Like this, these are nice big words. They're spaced out. So when I saw that, I was like, fuck Drew, like you're, you're hurting me here, brother. And then, then I opened it up. I'm like, this is great. We did that on purpose, though, with big margins, because a book like this and everybody said, like, I was surprised the number of people who wanted it in paper. I'm like, oh, I'll just be a Kindle book. Like, no, we want the paper and audio like audio book was huge when I started when I published the audio book. But we specifically made it with bigger spacing and big margins because people wanted to highlight and take notes and stuff. So I, that's the coolest when you see people posting pictures of the book. I have it open to a page. They're writing notes. They're highlighting. It's really right. very rewarding. See that. Yeah, that that's helps. the best. It's helping. Yeah, it's cool. 
A hundred percent. Now, Drew, I want to get you out of here on time. I, I could talk to you for the rest of the day. I really can. Um, one last question for you. If you could only give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, meaning if Drew was to hop on more podcasts, hop on stages, write another book, et cetera, what would that one piece of advice be? Learn to be okay with you. If there is a single thing that impedes people who are trying to recover from these anxiety disorders, it is that they have a lack of belief in themselves. They judge themselves as not enough, not good enough, hard. They harshly judge themselves. Learn to be okay with you. Learn to believe in you. A lot of things fall into place when you can get there. I love that. Now, is there any quick tip you can give to someone that's listening to learn to be okay with themselves? Yeah. um, You got to do stuff. You'll never get okay. We learn almost nothing by thinking. Like thinking is so highly overrated. I'm a huge fan of thinking, but thinking is highly overrated as a problem solving tool. You only learn things when you do things. So you have to start doing things that you don't know how to do. Being okay with failing, trying stuff, trial and error, get it right, practice. You can't just sit on your sofa and hope that you become a confident person. You just have to start doing shit. I love that. That's how you do it. Yep. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to have all of the social links where they can get the book, uh, <laughs> communities, et cetera, in the website, in the show notes of this episode. Sure. Do you have anything on the brink of releasing any new projects or anything that we should make people aware of? Um, well, I'm writing again. So there's two more books coming, but they're going to probably be the end of the year into the beginning of next year. So I can't really plug anything there, but uh, we're going to turn the, the, the book was written to be a course. So very shortly, there will actually be probably in the next month or two, we'll start releasing that. Uh, it will be an actual online course that is a companion to the book. So I love that. But we'll have all this stuff on the website. Awesome. We'll, we'll bring you back on to promote those books when they're coming around. I had an amazing conversation with you, Drew. I just wanted to say thank you again. Truly appreciate it. Well, thanks for the invite. We're so close. Maybe one day we'll actually get to see each other. Who knows? That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Hi, right, brother. Thanks for having me. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen, episode number 178 with our friend Drew Lincelata. You can find all of his social handles, website, where you can get his books in the show notes of this episode. On top of that, you could also subscribe to our YouTube channel via the show notes of this episode, as well as connect with me on social. I know a lot of you like to do that as well. And we love receiving your messages, by the way. So continue sending them in. Let us know your feedback directly. If you haven't left that rating and review, please do so. We absolutely love hearing from you. Seriously, I really, really mean that. On top of that, if this episode was of value to you, I highly suggest sharing it and being that beacon of light. Pass that baton onto someone that could use the wisdom from Drew, that can you know, find inspiration and whatever else they may need in this day right now. You now have the opportunity to do that. So not only would we appreciate that, but the people you're sharing it would. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.